because you guys haven't been here, Matt and John, quick uh, little background, real fast, so we can get through this text today. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. The book of Hebrews is a letter that was written to a faith community in and around Rome about 60 to 70 AD. It was written to this faith community made up of three groups of people. Believers that were all in. Their hearts had been transformed. They were all in, but they were struggling because they were being persecuted from the Romans on the outside. The Jewish brothers who they recently had left and departed to follow Jesus instead of the sacrificial system, they were persecuting them. And and so they were feeling this angst and this pressure to conflate Jewish sacrificial um, rituals along with Jesus and put them together. And the writers primarily writing to that first group, but within that, that larger faith community, there were people that I call hangers-on. They were, they were people who intellectually had bought into Jesus, and they were hanging around them thinking that because they, they these other people had bought in, and they intellectually bought in, that, okay, that made them part of that community, but they weren't all in. They did not have a heart transformation. There's a lot of people like that in the U.S. And then the third group is a people that's still trying to figure out, but they all made up this community. This was a letter written, read at one sitting from beginning to end to impact those people to be more in love with Jesus, to be more surrendered to Jesus, and hopefully move group two and three into that relationship. Now, there's five warnings given in the letter. Uh, with the overarching theme being Jesus is supreme to everything. So each warning is trying to point people back to that message. And the first warning is in chapter 2, and it it says, don't drift from the message. Don't neglect the message. We have to keep coming back to the message of Jesus is supreme. The second warning is in chapter 3, and it says, don't harden your heart. And it's from Psalm 95, where the writer is quoting there, referencing back to Exodus, where the children of Israel had a hard heart that was equated with unbelief. Because back in Exodus 17, they said this. They said, does God really care? Is God really with us? That was their statement. And that was their sin. It was unbelief. And so he says, don't harden your heart. The third warning in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 12 is this warning of don't waver. Don't go back and forth between your tradition, where you were, and where God wants to take you. Be all in. If you've ever seen anybody waver, it's not a pretty picture. When somebody can't make up a decision, does it frustrate you? It frustrates me. Just make a decision one way or the other. And that's basically what he's saying. Be all in. By now, you should have been able to teach God's Word, he says. But you still need milk because you're not growing. No growth equals no life. If you have a long extended period of no growth, there's no life there. And so they need to be all in with Jesus. Fourth warnings in chapter 10 where he says, don't be an apostate. Don't be an apostate. In other words, he says, don't know the truth and then reject it. That's what an apostate is. Somebody who can look so close to the real thing because they know it, they know all about it, but they've never embraced it. 
Judas being the best example of that in Scripture. And then today we're coming to the fifth warning in chapter 12. But in between that fourth warning, chapter 10 and chapter 12, he goes through chapter 11, which you know of the Hall of Fame of Faith. He gives all these examples from the Old Testament. And I never knew this until a few weeks ago. He actually, the writer, from beginning to end, he unfolds the Old Testament using Bible characters. Starting with Abel, then he moves to Enoch, then he moves to Abraham, I'm sorry, yeah, Enoch to Abraham, then he moves from Abraham to Moses, then he goes to Joshua, Rahab, Samson, Jephthah, Judges. He basically stair steps them through. Then he goes to the prophets, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Isaiah. Uh, he, he goes through each prophet generally with all these names and unfolds the Old Testament saying these people ran the race of faith. They put the faith on display to the world around them the way they were supposed to. Look at these people. Then he says, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, run this race, taking off every weight, things that hinder you, every sin that prevents you from getting to the finish line, and run this race. And we saw uh, that he says we got to run it according to God's plan. we got to run it according to God's purpose. And we got to run the race according to God's pattern. Jesus is a supreme example of how we run the race. And then last week we looked at two things. Um, basically, he calls us to embrace discipline. And he refers to the suffering they're experiencing as discipline. So when we go through suffering, most of us don't think of it as discipline. We think of it as bad luck. We think of it as man. Why doesn't God love me? We think of why is God doing this to me? instead of seeing it as training. And I was talking with Taylor, uh, who's a football player, and his dad was a football player, and he was talking about when you're going through two-a-days, you don't like it, but it prepares you for the game. Prepares you for the race you're going to run in the season. And nobody likes it. It's painful. When the coach makes you run 40 wind sprints after you've been practicing all day, you're like, you're gassed. You don't like it. But it's that embracing the suffering. We saw three reasons he brings suffering slash discipline into our life. One, for correction, to strengthen and transform us. Two, he brings it to uh, protect us. Paul in 12.7 of 2 Corinthians said, he gave me a thorn to keep me from being prideful. So it's protective. And third, it instruct us and we, uh, instructs us. And we looked at Job how Job had his perspective informed by his suffering. And he says, now I see you, God. I just heard about you, but now I see you. He says at the end of, uh, or in Job 42. Yes, they use chastise, but the word there is the word in Greek, paideia, paideia, I'm sorry, paideia. And paideia means to instruct children. That was the meaning of the Greek word. In the old King James, maybe even the new King James, I think chastised is used. But in the quote, which is a good question from the Old Testament, the word chastised is used because that's the Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word was punishment. But the writer who's writing to the Hebrew people in and around Rome uses the word paideia, which is instruction. And so that's what he's trying to communicate. That, that suffering 
is to give us instruction, correction, and protection for us in the race of faith. And then we saw at the second part of uh, 12 through 17 that God not only calls us to embrace discipline, but to encourage His disciples. He says, strengthen the droopy hands, the, the weak knees. He says, strive for the peace and holiness for which without nobody will see God if you don't have it. And He says, beware of the bitter root that springs up. And He's quoting there from Deuteronomy 29. And He's talking about a leader that misleads people. And then He throws out Esau with sexual immorality. He just throws that in there after talking about a leader that misleads people. Why? Because he uses the word pornos, which we get pornography from. And he uses Esau. And why would he conflate those two people? I mean, Esau with pornos. Is pornography giving in to a primal urge? Of course it is. For us as men. Listen. To look at a naked woman is not a bad desire that a guy has. It's not evil. It's just meant to be within a boundary that God has set. I mean, it's like taking a train and taking it off the track when you look at pornography. It's like putting square wheels on a train. It doesn't work. Because God didn't design us for that. So our brains, what happens when we look at pornography, our brains release dopamine. And what happens is, as you do that, it releases that dopamine. You go, wow, I like that feeling. And it makes you want to have sex with a woman, which is a good thing. It just that woman needs to be your wife. And the way God created our brains is to release that. But He also did something else that's fascinating. And most men don't know this. That if you do that a couple of times, your body readjust and goes, okay, that feels good. But if you do it every day the same way, then after a while your body goes, okay, I've done that now. And, and so you go back to work. Otherwise, you'd never do anything but stay in the bedroom all the time. You never get any work done. God created us that way. And so what your body does when it looks at pornography is you look at things that stimulate your brain, releases the dopamine, but after a while, just looking at that isn't enough, so you have to go up a little deeper. That's why people get into child pornography and other perverted forms of sexuality. Because your brain craves more dopamine. And we don't realize as we go into that, I don't even know why I got into this, except he uses it in the text. The word pornos, he's talking about that primal urge. And he's saying, don't let people creep in that tell you it's okay. And so we've got a whole generation now that's saying, you know what? God covers your sin. Don't worry about it. And they're afraid to be held to standards and accountability. And we need to talk to each other and hold each other accountable and say, listen, brother, you love looking at naked women more than Jesus. And He didn't die for you to live like that. He died for you to run the race with your eyes on the finish line, putting Him on display to the world around us. So, He says, encourage one another in these ways. So that's what we looked at last week. Well, He finishes up chapter 12 after saying all that with this fifth warning. And the fifth warning is this. He says, don't reject Jesus. He just comes out and says it. Don't reject Him. 
And so we've, we've looked at this race theme the last few weeks. And basically what he lays out in this text today in 18 through 29 is a tale of two races. You know how you can look, two people can look at the same thing and see a completely different thing? It's called perspective, right? Well, he's laying out here a tale of two races. One race is performance. One race is faith-based. One race is going to Mount Sinai. One race is going to Mount Zion. Now for me, 15 years ago, that wouldn't have had any meaning at all. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, just two names of Israeli mountains or, or a little piece of... Mount Zion's not even a mountain. It's a little hill. But I wouldn't have thought anything about it. But now that I know the Old Testament, now that I... And I don't know it perfectly, but I know enough to know what Mount Sinai represented. And that's what he's trying to communicate to these people who absolutely would have known what Mount Sinai represented and what Mount Zion represented, not because they just physically saw it, but because they knew the text of the Old Testament. And so when a guy stands up and says, we don't need to know the Old Testament, we, we don't need to know what the Bible says, it's ludicrous. And he says here, he takes them back to Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, and said, this is two races you can run. And so I'm going to give you the outline, then we're going to come back, we're going to read the text and unpack it. So here it is. God reveals to us as we run our race of faith, that there's two races we can run. And I gave them to you. A performance race or a faith race. Those are first, that's the first thing he brings out in, in verses 20, or 18 through 24. But then in, uh, in 22, I'm sorry, 18 through 22. No, I say 18 through 24. I was right the first time. Uh, then the second thing he brings out is there's two responses that we can have to this race and, and, and to what the, the, the regulator of the race tells us how you run the race. Anybody in here ever run a race? You have, you have, you have. If you've run a race, do you get to decide the course? Do you go, I'm going to run that race and I'm going to run it this way? Who decides the course that you run? The person who creates the race. This goes back to his plan. And so there's two races we can run, but there's also two responses we can have. All right. Third, there's two results we need to know. There's two results we need to know. If we run this race, we're going to get this result. If we run this race, we're going to get this result. People run a race because they know what's at the end. They run it because they're trying to get to the finish line for a reason. Whether it's a little medal they want to dangle around their neck, put on their uh, mantel, or put in their attic where they'll never see it again. They run the race for a reason, so we need to know that. So two races to run, two responses we can have, and the two results. So let's read the text, and in 18 minutes we're going to try to knock this out. All right? Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, You yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of a things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So how would you describe the race that you're running? Not the ideology of your race, not what you would like to run, but literally, if somebody was watching you run the race of life, would they say that you're running a race of performance or a race of faith? What would they say? How do you respond to God's oversight of your race? He's the racing official. When he tells you you're not running the race the way he wants to, do you buck him and go keep going off course? How do you respond to the benefits he gives you just for being in the race? You know, for you guys who've raced, one of the things, I've raced two races, one of the things I like is when you sign up for the race, a lot of times you get things just for getting in the race. They give you gifts, perks. You get this, 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 and this just for being there. T-shirt, you know, uh, one place we got a bunch of food certificates. You got other little perks to all that just for being in the race. I think a lot of times we take for granted what we get just for running the race of faith. And so as we look at this, I I was reminded um, by a quote from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozier was this great saintly man. He loved the Lord. He was a man and he was flawed, but man, God used him to pen some powerful words. And he said this, he said, the most important thing about a person is what that person thinks about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. And then he said this, It's better to not think about God at all than to think about Him wrongly. Do we have a problem with that in our country? Do we, do we have a lot of teachers that teach wrongly about the God of Israel? 
Yes, we do. And as we look at this text, one of the problems with these people that he's writing to and warning groups two and three is these are people that tip their hat to God, but they won't bow their heart to Him. And we've got a lot of people in our country that tip their hat to God, but they won't bow their heart to Him. They won't bow their knee to Him. And there's a difference between those two. God doesn't want our courtesy. He wants our surrender. And so, He says in this text, there's two races. He says, and He lays out Mount Sinai. That's what He's describing. And He's describing it back from Exodus 19. And I'm not going to go there and read it because of time, but go back and read Exodus 19, 10-16. Smoke, fire, the earth shook. Like a, I mean, if you've ever been in an earthquake, it's scary. If you've ever been near a volcano when it's shaking, you talk to people, you look at witnesses who've been there. It's terrifying. People who've been in earthquakes, they never recover a lot of times. They have... PTSD for years after that. And the earth shook at Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law. And God told the people back in Exodus 19, cordon it off, Moses. Don't let them come up because they're going to die if they do. Even an animal, if it comes up, is going to die. Why? Because unholy man can't approach God. The message of Sinai is God is unapproachable to unholy man on His own performance can't do it that's the message of Sinai so he's saying that's a performance race now what's the problem with the people he's writing to they're wanting to go back to a corrupted system you see the Jewish people corrupted what God had intended to be a picture of sacrifice that you go to God never based on your merit but they had corrupted that It was only meant to be a picture anyway, but they corrupted it and they were teaching people that you're righteous by how you live. You're righteous by how you do these things. That's what makes God acceptable. And God's saying, nope, that ain't it. If you go to Sinai on your own performance, you're judged before me on your own performance. I don't want to be judged on my performance. And I don't think you do either. And that's what he's saying. He's saying that but here's what he, it's interesting. He uses this. You know, when I was in the FBI, um, I carried a gun in and out of the house all the time. I had young kids. And there, my wife was concerned about them playing with a gun or seeing it and doing something. So I took my kids out one day and I put a watermelon on a, on a, a table. And I took that 45 that I had and I had them watch it. I shot it and it went, I mean... It went in the front small, but it blew the back of that watermelon out, okay? And I showed them, it will do this to your brain. It will do this to your body. And they're like, you know, they're just staring at it. They're like, they've never forgotten that. That was a visual picture for their senses. Because do you think that if I would have sat them in the den and said, listen, kids, this is a gun. It's going to hurt you. It's going to go in big or small and come out big and it's going to tear your body up, would that have had the same impact as showing them? No. You know it wouldn't. Why? We're physical. We, we, we uh, respond to the sensory. So the writer is giving them a picture that they would have known. 
He's giving them a sensory picture, a physical sensory picture. And he says, that's what Sinai appeals to. The senses. Why did the law come? To reveal that we needed God. Paul says that I wouldn't know what sin was without the law. And so the whole idea of Mount Sinai was to reveal the holiness of God, the unapproachableness of God, and the fact that we needed a schoolmaster. We needed the Ten Commandments to guide us and reveal to us that we needed a Savior. That's the purpose, Paul said. And so that's what God does. But then he talks about Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is this little hill. It's really unimpressive. It's right next to Mount Moriah over in Israel. If you go there and look at it, you go, that's it. Because it's not impressive. You think this great big mountain? No, it's just a little hill. But the reason Mount Zion is so important is God said, this is where I choose for my mercy and my name to dwell. You see, Mount Zion was a picture of His mercy and grace. David named Mount Zion, Mount Zion, and it's in Jerusalem. Now, before Mount Zion was named Mount Zion, it, it, was, it was in Jerusalem, and they were that area was owned by the Jebusites. And it was a city called Salem. And if you remember, back in chapter 7, we read about a guy named Melchizedek, who was what? The king of Salem. King of peace. He was also, his name meant king of righteousness. And my wife asked me the other day, why, how did he get to be a king? God appointed him. Well, why was he among pagan people? Because that's where God wanted his name to dwell. For hope. And isn't it interesting that where God chose to put his name was a place called Mount Zion. He says, David, my king, goes in there. He wipes out the Jebusites and he establishes a place called Mount Zion. And from then on, Mount Zion was known as blessing of God. Favor of God. Now, here's what's interesting. Ultra-nationalist Jews, people who are very ultra-national, what are they known as today? Zionists. Not Sinaiist. Zionist. God chose for His name there. There's verses in the Bible. Psalm 132.13 says, God's dwelling place. Zion. God's dwelling place. 1 Kings 14.21 says, God put His name there. 1 Kings 14.21 Psalm 48.2 said Zion is the joy the joy of the earth. Zion is joy of the earth. You go there, this is the joy of the earth? What's He talking about? Because Zion appeals not to the physical but to the spiritual sensory. It was always about the spiritual. And so, we can't approach God on Sinai, but we can approach Him on Zion. Because what else happened at Zion? Jesus died. What's the symbol of love of God? The cross. And that's where it was. The same place 
that Abraham offered up Isaac. By the way, quick side note, I shared this with John and Bob yesterday. Do you know that the place that Melchizedek blessed Abraham was Mount Moriah, right there next to Mount Sinai? I mean, Mount Zion. They were right there together. And Abraham, God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. You're going to be a great people. You're going to do all this. He goes, how am I going to be blessed? I don't have any kids. This is when when, um, Melchizedek blessed him. So then he goes back to the desert, has the kid, and God says, now take him back to the very place Melchizedek blessed you and kill him and prove that you're not running a performance race where you protect him but you come and you trust me that I will protect him. Isn't that wild? He goes right back there to that place because you can't approach God on Sinai. You you can't approach Him on Zion. There's no forgiveness without the law. There's no mercy without wrath. And and the problem in American culture, in the way we share the Gospel, we want to throw Jesus out to people that don't even know they're sick. We want to throw people that know they're not condemned. That's why you start with the law with prideful people. Hey, have you ever told a lie? Have you uh, ever lusted after a woman? Have you ever hated somebody? Have you ever wanted something your neighbor had that you couldn't buy? Really bad? Really desired it and was angry that you didn't have it? And if they get, say yes to all them, have you honored your mom and dad every day of your life? Have you worshipped the one true living God 24-7 every day of your life? Have you ever had an idol, something that you valued over God? You go through the law with them, and by the end of that questioning session, I'm telling you, they will feel it. They may not acknowledge it, but their heart will feel condemned. And that's where they need to be for grace to be active. There is no active grace without a feeling of condemnation. Say again? Yeah. There needs to be brokenness. There's no mercy without wrath. No love without judgment. And no forgiveness without the law. There just isn't. And so that's the race of faith versus the race of performance. And real quick, seven benefits. I'm just going to, in 22, just jot this, verses 22 to 24. Seven benefits of running the faith race. First, The city of God, verse 22, he says, you come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. This was what Abraham was looking back in chapter 11 when it says he was looking forward to the city that God built the foundation. We just talked about that. All right, second thing, angel party, angels in festal gathering. The angels throw a party because you run the faith race. Third thing, the assembly of the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? Jesus, and we're in His assembly. Why? He says, because your name was written on that race book. You registered for that race when? When you ran your race, Alan, you wrote your name on that book. You signed up for the race. But we can't sign up for the faith race. Who signs us in the roll book for the faith race? God does. Before the foundations of the world. Now, a lot of people struggle with that. But that's what he says. We were enrolled when? Before the beginning of the ages. Fourth, he says, verse 23, we have an audience with God. God the judge. 
we can go into His presence not because of our performance, but because of Jesus. Sinai, you die when you come into His presence. Zion, you live, He's saying. Fifth, Old Testament saints made perfect. We saw that at the end of chapter 11. Spirits of righteousness. Can you imagine being in heaven? Have you ever thought about who you're going to want to ask questions first? I'm serious. I have two guys I want to talk to. They were the baddest warriors in the Old Testament to me. David and Samson. Those were some bad dudes, man. If I ever could have eternal bodyguards, that's who I want by my side. They kick rear end. But you ever think about that? These, but they, those saints were perfected in Zion and we're going to be with them. You know, we think about, you know, I think about my, my best friend in the Marine Corps and I think about those guys. But think about all these saints, these saints we're going to get to be with. That's a benefit. Sixth, Jesus. Verse 24 says, we come to Jesus Himself, our mediator. Can you imagine that day, Ronnie, when you stand there and He just wraps His arms and says, welcome home, Ronnie. And so, we're going to get to be with our mediator. And finally, He says, you're also coming to the sprinkled blood. That was always symbolic of cleansing the Jewish people. And it was more perfect, better than Abel's sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice was a good one. We saw that last week. And He's reminding them it was good, but Jesus is better. And so we see that there's two races we can run. Performance or faith. But then in verse 25, He gives us the warning. He says there's two responses we can have. He says, see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. And notice He says, the same thing Paul says in Thessalonians. If you reject what I'm saying, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God. And he's warning them, don't reject Jesus. Sinai shakes the earth. Zion shakes the heavens, he says. You want to know what that looks like? Go to 2 Peter 3. Listen, there's a difference between dropping a 500-pound bomb and a nuclear bomb. Two different results. I've seen them both. Man, it is... world. I mean, you're talking shaking the heavens. He's saying you reject what Jesus brings you, the heavens are going to shake. So, there's two covenants. Jesus is better, He's telling them. Old covenant, new covenant. Jesus is the way to go. There's two sacrifices. The blood sacrifice of animals, Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus is better. And he's saying there's two spokesmen. Moses, who they revered. You can go Sinai, the way of Sinai, but if you do, you're standing on your own merits. Jesus is better. Go His way. There's two responses we can have. Do you know why there are Jews in the United States today? Do you know why there's Jews in Europe today? Why there are Jews in Africa? Jews in South America? Where should Jewish people be today? They're scattered everywhere. Six million Jews exterminated in Germany. Everywhere because they have rejected the Most High God. They're not where they should be. They've gotten off course. 
They still think today, most of them, it's a performance race that they're running. And finally, he says, there's two results that we need to know. Verse 28. He says, therefore, because of all this, let us, what? Be grateful and let us worship. Be grateful for a kingdom that can't be shaken and let us worship. So the first thing, the first result is, if we run the faith race, you're going to be gifted with an inheritance that can't be shaken. What should our response be to that? Worship and all. I was in church the other day, and an elder in the church, I was sitting there watching, and I don't know what was going on in his life, but I had this thought as I watched him. We're sitting there singing about the blood of Jesus and how it cleanses us. And I'm thinking, man, I'm so thankful for that. And I'm singing, and I'm looking over at him, and he's like this with his arms crossed. This is a leader in the church. Voice not, a mouth not moving, nothing, just sitting there. And I'm thinking, man, we're singing to the God of all creation, thanking Him for what He's done for us. And this is an elder, and I'm looking around the church, and there's lots of people doing that, but this is an elder. And I was so quick to think about Him that God reminded me just a few weeks earlier when I was struggling with my wife that I go into this time to be with God's people and I was doing the same thing. Because that's what God does to get our attention. He'll point out a flaw that we have in our own life through other people only to remind us, that's you. That's why you need me. So pray for Him, Doug. Encourage Him. He's fallen. going to the finish line. Help Him. That's what we should do. But our response should be to worship and be grateful. The second result is one that we don't want. It's the race of performance. That results in what he says at the end of the chapter. The very last words, our God is a consuming fire. That's judgment. So we can be judged or we can be gifted. Gifted for the faith race, judged in the performance race. If we come to God apart from Jesus, when we stand before Him, we will stand condemned. That group two and group three, group two especially, they were into moral refurbishment, getting the check in the box, fire insurance, but they did not surrender to Jesus. They merely tipped their, tipped their hat to Him. So, Going back to Tozier and what he said, what do I really believe about God? Which race am I running? Am I tipping my hat or am I bowing my heart? Real quick, before we pray, I just want to open it up with any quick comments or thoughts or questions. Oh, and you just mentioned that about seeing the other persons but their arms folded and being critical in your own head, which I do all the time. And this whole thing, it just reminds me of Jesus' parable about the king who forgives the guy a debt he can never repay. Mm-hmm. And never repay. It's beyond repayment. That's all of us. And then we go out, I go out, and beat the crap out of a guy who owes me two bucks. Right? And that's... So your comment about helping others to the finish line... Sometimes I'd rather beat them up for two bucks than help them over the finish line. Yeah, and what's our response? Remember I shared about the Marine Corps last week? When we're running, we, we were only running 
as fast as the slowest guy. And if he fell down, we picked him up and brought him with us. Who are we picking up? There's people falling in our races. There's people all around us running the performance race. They think, yeah, they know about Jesus, but they think they have to conflate that with, i got to do this and I'm not doing well. And so they get discouraged and then they don't sing. They don't worship. They're not thankful. So, John, will you close our time in prayer? Uh, Father God, we thank you.